Get Real is recorded on the unceded lands of the Boonarong and Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge and pay our respects to their elders, past and present. We also acknowledge that the first peoples of Australia are the first storytellers, the first artists and the first creators of culture, and we celebrate their enduring connections to country, knowledge and stories. Welcome to Get Real, talking mental health and disability, brought to you by the team at Irma365. Join our hosts, Emily Webb and Carenza Louis-Smith, as we have frank and fearless conversations with special guests about all things mental health and complexity. We recognise people with lived experience of mental ill health and disability, as well as their families and carers. We recognise their strength, courage and unique perspective as a vital contribution to this podcast, so we can learn grow and achieve better outcomes together. Hello, my name is Ellen Maple. Today we're talking about recovery-oriented practice. With me I've got Tamara, who I'm going to let her introduce herself. She's got a lot of really relevant experience to bring to the table. Lynn, from a practice leader here at Irma 365, and Dr Melissa Petrakis from Monash University. Tamara, I'd love for you to introduce yourself to our listeners because you have such a rich experience that you bring to the table. I, for five years, was an active person in the Victorian mental health system. So I have a lived experience. I have a trauma-based disorder, disassociated identity disorder. So from your perspective, Tamara, what does a supportive relationship look like and how, how do we do that? How do we create, foster, support and lead a supportive relationship with someone that we're trying to help? It's certainly not a simple question. Um, <laughs> a lot down, comes down to knowing your clients and communication skills. So the first one, obviously, is things like active listening. So having open-ended questions, having that respectful curiosity, allowing people to sit with the silence. So a lot of people, if you ask them a question, um, they might take a while to sort of gather their thinking. They might do that internally or they might... Yeah, have to sort of have a dialogue to kind of sort through their thoughts. So being comfortable sitting in that silence is huge. And that's often hard for a lot of us. Some people aren't great with verbal expression. So learning if our clients are more visual kinesthetic. So being able to do things like, can you mind map it? Can you draw it? Can you write down dot points? Journaling work for you. Is there something in the journaling that you choose to tell me? So giving people those options around communication uh, I think it's huge. Being aware that oftentimes people communicate best while they're doing another activity. So it might be, you know, that they're walking, that you're not sitting sort of face-to-face with the person where they feel like they're in the middle of an interrogation, mm-hmm. that it's more of a natural conversation that you're having. Certainly being conscientious about your word choices, as, as uh, Melissa was saying. And even though people may use some interesting vocabulary to describe their own situation, we tend to try to model sort of positive word choices without being, I know better or berating them in that sense. So we're just very conscientious around word choices. Working with people that relate well to analogies, I find this helps a lot of people hold things in their mind. I was working with a gentleman who had a mental illness. He had some addiction issues. His divorce was about eight years old. Through some of the issues he had gone through, he had lost custody of his children. And this was something that was a constant theme that played in his his mind is his anger towards his ex-wife and the situation of losing his children. 
And after knowing him for a while um, and having a good rapport with him, I actually said to him, and, and we'll call him Bob, I said, you know, Bob, would you rent a room in your house to your ex-wife? And he said, oh, no way. And he kind of went on a bit of a thing about that. And I said, okay, so why are you renting her so much space in your head? And it just sort of clicked in his mind of, you know, oh, my gosh, I'm allowing her to consume so much of my time and so much negative energy to him. And I said, what if you're able to try and every time she comes into your mind, tell her to get out of your mind and think about what skills and tools and strategies that you need to do to gain access to have you know, custody time with your children, which was a huge goal for him. And that sort of analogy of renting space in my head really stuck with him. So it gave him something to kind of hold on. I also like to sort of present to people this idea of the spectrum. Are my behaviors or what I'm thinking helping me or are they hurting me? So again, giving somebody a very, very simple tool to decide, you know, is this helpful? Is this hurtful? Sometimes people, you know, might need to actually chart that out as sort of, you know, a positive side and a, and a negative side, allowing people to have tools in which they get to be in control of what's happening in their lives. I also think that, you know, a huge aspect comes around why do we want, why do we want to know our clients? It's really what do we want to know about our clients? And it's those skills that we have, it's that knowledge that we have on you know, how do we motivate them? How do we work with them? What's important to them? So we're asking questions to our clients like, you know, what motivates you? What does your client fear or, um, or makes them shut down? What are their hopes or goals for the future? So again, looking at that sort of, what does a future picture look like for you? What strengths do you possess and how do you get them? So it might be even doing a strength analysis because I think a lot of people who have been in quite challenging situations sort of forget they have an amazing amount of strengths, even mm. keep going. What happened in the past tools that you have that you've used that are effective? Are they still effective? Can you reinstate those tools? If you become unwell, what are your concerns? So we have a lot of people who, you know, are fearful of things like going back into hospital. And it might be as simple as if I go in the hospital, I live by myself and there's nobody to look after my cat. So, you know, these are some reasons why we get to know people. What brings you joy and happiness? You know, we don't often ask that question because we're also thinking about sort of what causes them distress. But, mm. you know, really, what causes you joy and happiness? That's huge to get people to reframe things, get people in a better mindset. What are the expectations that you have of me? So, you know, and what are those reasonable? Is this something, you know, that we can work together on? And what are the expectations that you have on yourself? So, you know, when we think about that, you know, communication and getting to know people, it's multi-layers and it's mm -hmm. something that's built up over trust and time. Um, you certainly wouldn't come in with this list of questions on your first session with Not. your client. <laughs> um, it would be incredibly overwhelming um, and they would feel interrogated. So it's something that we sort of build on as we go. I think for many of our workers, some of that information would be available to them from other workers and from files. And they'll be able to do a bit of research to prepare themselves for a visit first and then continue the conversation within their own relationship as well. Because we see in, you know, certainly in our co more complex space here at Irma, that we have teams of people working with one individual. So it's 
yes, there's many individual relationships, but there's also a relationship with the team and things too. But I think having those, a lot of you just named so many fantastic strategies. I don't want them to get lost in, in, all, in, the, in the volume of really great ideas that you're sharing with us. But I think to highlight it, some of the great things that you shared, again, just to reiterate them for our listeners, I think being able to apply really creative and in tune ways of communicating and connecting with people. So whether it be drawing or writing, whether it be distracting and then talking while doing another activity, whether it be using some fabulous analogies, any of those things may work or none of them may work and that's okay. And sometimes they work on one day but not another. You might have a great experience with one person trying an analogy or and then use it for somebody else and it just falls flat. And that's actually okay as well. That If you can bring in a bit of self-compassion, a bit of bravery into being able to experiment and try different things with people in a you know, in a low risk way. So there's not, not, not with high stakes for the relationship, being able to express and try these things. You can have a lot of fun with it and you can often move things forward to strengthen the relationship. And even the trying to communicate effectively can be quite powerful too. I wanted to almost repeat a couple of things that Tamara said, because there's this science that shows that anytime we're exposed to a new idea, we have to hear it multiple times to be able to take it on board, like to have it be our own not just for adult listeners or adult learners, but like for everybody. We have to be exposed to something repeatedly if it might contradict or be new to what we intuitively already do. And so it's worth, I think, just again highlighting for the listeners a couple of things in particular that were quite sophisticated that Tamara was talking about. Mm. And what Tamara was doing was letting people take the conversation how they wanted or where they wanted. So just the open-ended questions is super important. And another thing that Tamara was talking about that's just mega beautiful is this idea that a sophisticated approach doesn't have to be done in a fancy pants way. So we call it the decisional balance sheet where you work out the pros and cons of something, or we we often talk about decisional balance sheets. As soon as you do that, it becomes fancy. Mm -hmm. And then it's a disempowering or expert versus client almost dynamic you set up, which is the opposite of what Tamara is talking about. So it's just to make sure that the listeners get that you can do it as simply as on the back of an envelope or on a post-it note, you draw a line down the middle of the sheet and you put a plus sign on one side and a negative on the other. And you just ask the person like, with regard to this thing or when you're talking about this thing and you feel a bit like you're not sure which way to go, what are the pluses and what are the negatives if you do that behavior? or? What about another one? What if you if you do this other behavior? What are the pluses and what are the like? What's the ga- what's to gain? What's to lose? There's always going to be both. Yeah, I'm always struck that when people tell us things, whenever we're assessing people, we're only usually doing that with what they tell us. So they already know the consumer, the service user already knows their needs. We only know through that what they tell us. So it's actually profoundly arrogant when without without realizing we're doing it, it's profoundly arrogant when we then tell someone and try and convince them and they're being resistant to it, what their needs might be, you know, yeah. because like we know. We're, we're, we're just picking and choosing which bits of their story we're hearing and feeding that back to them often, especially in inpatient settings where I've worked sometimes. As soon as we've seen a lot of people with a similar presentation, we think like the next one through the door is the same or the next one through the door as if it's a, a, a production line. The next one, you know, the next person through the door will have, if they present a certain way, will will want to need the same thing. So I'm going to roll that out and I'll be efficient. And I just think at every point you can, don't do that. I was just talking about that the other day. We used to start referring to someone as a diagnosis instead of, and, 
and it can be it can be really easy in the certain sadly diagnoses that end up getting a bad rap more than others and I was recalling uh, saying to someone think about it this way a few years back now I uh, was at the hairdressers I had two hairdressers for some reason don't know what I was doing but they started moving me around like to do whatever and the other one got my head and sort of pushed it to the side and said to the other hairdresser you moved the head (laughs) now they forgot I was under there because this is what and I think of that often when I think when someone goes oh here's another BPD or here's another and you sit there thinking you know and it gets easy to do it when people have seen it but it's remembering it's a person that has been given this diagnosis often wrongly as well it depends things have changed even our determination of someone with autism has changed in the last few years it's it's remembering that there's actually a person who has been given this label but there's a person everyone is different not every single person is going to have the same thing not every person with brown hair likes dogs you know when we're talking about recovery oriented relationships you know there's really three things in the room with us we've got the person where they're there to support we've got ourselves and then the relationship is almost like a third person and we're talking about the skills and techniques and things that people can use to build relationships where they're the things that we're working on constantly we never seem to we talk about this bag of tools that's that workers need to have in order to go out on their job but these are tools for life you know we have relationships in every stage of our life with a whole range of different people and those relationship skills that we're learning about we're also teaching to the people that we're supporting for our listeners just to try and give some people some really nice takeaways what would be I'd love it if we could just share maybe a top one to maybe even three tips for new workers to consider when we're thinking about building those recovery oriented supportive relationships what are the top two or three things that people could you know to try and to do in, in when they're first meeting people or in maintaining those relationships I would firstly say ask for an invitation to do so don't assume because you are there to work and the person you support knows that I'm here for you you let me know I'm not the professional or the expert in your life you are you know open in the invitation and and give them the strength from the very start and and be genuine be genuine (laughs) like you know it, it sounds I know it sounds silly maybe cliche and people go of course we'll be genuine but Sometimes people aren't. If you talk a certain way, that's how you talk. And, you know, like quite often, uh, say with some people that, mainly people with a disability that may have a different, you know, verbal cues, I'll say, oh, sometimes I sound a bit funny with this accent. And, you know, move on, just add something like that. Mm. So that if, if there's something you're not understanding, it'll, it's most likely from my end. So again, just the invite and giving them that power that they can ask questions and that, it's not on them if they don't understand something. Mm-hmm. It's it's a shared the checking, responsibility. The checking of it and, and giving right. people, say, and that's a bit of saving face going on there too for people. Oh, yeah. that's it, exactly. And we do that and I believe we do that or with staff, people coming into interviews, I always ask, if you don't understand something, mm. just please let me know so that I can ask you. There's nothing worse than feeling stuck because if you can carry on talking the rest of the day if they don't know what you were saying at the very first place, you've just wasted everyone's time. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Melissa, did you have anything that you wanted to add? Yeah, yeah. I would say that, you know, there are guides and tools to help us and that in Victoria we have this framework for recovery-oriented practice from August 2011. It's not new. We're actually all supposed to be implementing it. And around page 13, there's really a really clear box around 
the key capabilities for mental health professionals. Mm -hmm. And I like it. It breaks down behaviours, attitudes, skills and knowledge. And I think sometimes it's part of such a big document People sometimes get lost in the whole document. Mm-hmm. But just that ta- that's that little table is probably a good starting mm-hmm. point. And I like the, the advice to work with people to identify, utilise and build on their strengths, mm-hmm. resources and resilience. I really like that. I like work with people to support and sustain their existing resources, assets, networks and relationships. Mm-hmm. And I really like facilitate people's self-management of their mental health. So it's that our behaviours should be values-based and should support the person in their own, yeah. like we were talking about before, goal setting, but their yeah. goals. Yeah. yeah, and to swing right back around to our earlier conversation, right. we were saying, you know, the holding around non-judgmental yeah, totally. practice and that we have values. And I think one of the things I wanted to add to that was that it's okay to, you know, to be motivated by social justice, to be motivated because of your values and your experience. And that's what draws us in, you know, Lynn, you alluded to that, that it draws us into the field of practice often, that we want to do this sometimes really challenging work that that makes us do quite a bit of soul searching sometimes too. That's uncomfortable. It's hard work in that way, but that we're driven to do that because of our values and that we can use those positively. We might need to set them aside in our relationships and not use them to make the choices in that we make with people, but we don't have to let go of our judgments completely. We can be driven by them and they can support us effectively if we do a good amount of self-reflection and knowing thyself as well. That probably would be my takeaway. That's a big theme that we've seen through these discussions too, is the importance of understanding yourself first in the relationship. Tamara, I'd love to give you the final word. Look, I agree with everything that Lynn and Melissa said, and I think there's so many skills, it's hard to break them down into a few. But I think what wasn't stated was to remain as adaptable as you can as a worker, that everybody is an individual. And again, you know, you you have that tools, but you're going to modify even the tools that you use to the individual and allow the individual to modify it. Um, So again, you know, going back to the Lego aspect is, you know, say, look, here's an idea. How would you do it? How would you like to use it? I think, you know, the transparency is huge. um, And this isn't, you know, that you have to tell them everything about your life. No, you, you have professional boundaries, but that you're transparent about the process. And in that is like, you know, not using jargon. As Melissa sort of alluded, we have this sort of academic vocabulary that we use to to bring it down to um, layman terms um, so that it puts us on equal grounding so people don't feel like, oh, you're the expert and I'm, you know, nothing. I'm, I'm, I'm just the person in need of help here. And patience. Um, I think patience is huge. I know working with a lot of clients, I had one client that, you know, it took about a year working with him to motivate him. And there was lots of challenges there. But once we actually started making a little chip into sort of moving forward, things started to flow. And then it was like a river. It just kind of kept gaining momentum from a trickling stream into a river. So I think, you know, a lot of us get really frustrated in the sense that we think, oh my God, this is so simple. If you just do this and this, you know, mm-hmm. you'll make progress and forward. But for a lot of people, it feels unsafe. It feels unnatural. It goes against the habits that they've formed for years. So patience is, you know, really, really valuable. Amazing. Thank you all so much for your time. It's been great having you. You've been listening to Get Real. Talking Mental Health and Disability, brought to you by the team at Irma365. Get Real is produced and presented by Emily Webb with Carenza Louis-Smith and special guests. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.
IRMA 365 provides specialist support for people with complex mental ill health and disability. Established by consumers in 1982, today IRMA 365 is proud to deliver services across Victoria and in the Northern Territory. Find out more at irma.org. That's E-R-M-H-A dot org.